When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 279, and we're recording on April 27th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Wigginton, and we're coming to you from Book Riot. I'm wearing shorts. What? Because it's hot. Wow. It's 88 degrees today. <laughs> you know, we so our high is 75 and t- for today, and then it's supposed to get up into the 80s later this week. But like, I th- our house holds on to the cool air, which is really great in summer. Nice. But yes. I am in a hoodie and sweatpants right now because it is not 75 <sighs> degrees inside my house. I'm so ready. I'm ready for summer and being out of this house, I, which everyone is ready for. Okay, wait. Important question. Oh, okay. When you say shorts, yes, are you a cutoff span? Are you what kind mm. of shorts do you wear, Amanda? Well, this has changed as of today because normally I just wear shorts. Like these are from H and M; they're just shorts. Okay, but I've been powerlifting for three years now, so now as of now, my quads don't fit in these shorts anymore. <laughs> but I didn't have enough time to change them, so I'm gonna have to either be a cutoffs person or be a person who like find special power lifter shorts i don't know i don't know they don't fit so i'm gonna have to ask around but normally just in in, just regular shorts but i'm about to convert to cutoffs i think (laughs) i'm a cutoff girl so i support it yeah all right did we talk about books today i don't know yeah let's talk about books i'm gonna talk about summer (laughs) exercise (laughs) whatever it's fine cutoffs you know the important things so we talk about books here most of the time. Um, and you can email us for uh, reading recommendation requests or send them to us via the form, which is at the bottom of the show notes on the site. And these can be reading requests for yourself or if you need a recommendation for your book club or a gift for someone or whatever. Any of that and all of that is acceptable. If your question is time sensitive, just put that in the subject line of the email or in the very first line in all caps if you use the form so that we will see it and get to it on time. We might email you back if we aren't going to get to it on time or if we've already answered your question on a different episode because we do not, at this point, expect everyone to have listened to all 279 episodes of this show. I've not even listened to all 279 episodes (laughs) of this show. So there's that. Okay, we have a few pieces of feedback. Our first one is from Brooke who says, for a lost friend who was wanting a recommendation for her friend who was having a tough time pursuing a mental health career, Brooke recommends This Close to OK by Lisa Cross-Smith. Sophie uh, recommends to Rihanna, who is requesting female-led anthologies, the book Mad and Bad, Real Heroines of the Regency by Bea Koch, who uh, is one of the co-owners of The Ripped Bodice, which is a romance-only bookstore on the West Coast. Um, Let's see. And Carrie has recommendations for a book featuring a quarter-life crisis, but that's happy and uplifting. Carrie recommends The Switch by Beth O'Leary, which is a permanent favorite of mine mm-hmm. um and she also recommends the city we became by nk jemison to the listener who is asking for a fantasy or sci-fi sci-fi book with lgbtq and social justice themes 
All right. I'm going to read our first question, and then we'll hear from our first sponsor, and away we'll go. All right. Our first question is from Laura, who says, I have a travel request. Books about or set in Hawaii? I'm going to Maui, the Big Island, and Oahu. I've already put the True to Me series on hold and have tried Freckled. I'm not going to Kauai, and it's not that good anyway. Um, I also have already read The Unhoneymooners, which I loved, and I have another memoir on hold called West of Then. Not looking for a dense read, but nonfiction is okay. I'm a big middle grade reader because they teach fourth grade, so all ages welcome. Um, all right, let's hear from our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Disney Books. Do y'all like Caribbean mythology? What's more, a thriller inspired by Caribbean mythology? If you do, I got something for you. A must-read thriller that draws from the darkest corners of Caribbean mythology from acclaimed author Sarah Das, who crafts a chilling tale of magic, murder, and how far we'll go to protect what's ours. It's perfect for fans of Angeline Bully and Tiffany D. Jackson. So, unlike other people on the small island of St. Virgil, Selena Da Silva does not believe in magic. She has a logical mind. She likes botany. She wants to study pharmacology. But then her mother gets sick and she's tethered to the island and she has to make money. So what does she do? She cons a couple gullible tourists with these useless talismans and phony protection rituals. But then one of the tourists ends up dead and at the center of a strange string of murders. And the truth Selena has been denying can no longer be avoided. There is evil lurking in the forest that surround St. Virgil. Now, to find out what that evil is, make sure to pick up It Waits in the Forest by Sarah Das. And thanks again to Disney Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris, is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Okay, Jen, tell us about Hawaii. Yes, well, so Laura said that YA was also okay, which made me very happy because it meant I could recommend The Girl from Everywhere by Heidi Heilig, which is the first in a series also called The Girl from Everywhere. And it's a fantastical YA, but this first book in particular is set in Hawaii during the, uh, shoot, I forget if it's 1800s or early 1900s, but anyway, historical Hawaii, slightly historical. And the sort of fantastical concept of this is that Nix and her father have this ship, and as long as her father has a map of 
whatever. Like it can be a real map. It can be imaginary map. It can be a historical map, a future map. doesn't matter. If somebody has drawn a map of something, he can go to there, which is awesome. And they have this very like found family crew and they go all over time and space and wherever. Like it's very neat. But her father is really obsessed with obtaining one specific map which goes to 1868 Honolulu. There it is, 1868. Because that is where he found Nix's mother, but he has since, like, lost her. And if they go back there, though, Nix, like, the timelines might collapse and then Nix might cease to exist. So she has complicated feelings about this, like, obviously. <laughs> like, she wants her father to be happy and, like, it would be cool to meet her mom. But if they, like, go there, then what happens to her? It's like time travel, you know, conundrums kind of things. But there's really great descriptions, like along with all of these complicated family questions, there's really great descriptions of what Honolulu was like during that time period, which I loved reading. It's so atmospheric. You feel like you're there. Nix's explorations are so interesting and entertaining. And I just love this concept. And I think you might really enjoy it as well. And Heidi Heilig is actually from Hawaii. So that is like an extra bonus on top of all of this. So again, that's The Girl from Everywhere by Heidi Heilig. I also picked a book by a Hawaiian author. um, And it is Sharks in the Time of Saviors by Kawhi Strong Washburn, which bonus in 2020 was on Obama's summer reading list. Hey. Hey. So that's a, I feel like that endorsement is more important than mine, (laughs) (laughs) even though you are specifically asking us, (laughs) but Obama liked it. So yeah. Um, Okay. So this is a novel set in 1995 and then also in present day. Uh, It goes back and forth. Uh, It's in Hawaii. A family is on a vacation. They live in Hawaii. They're natives to the uh, islands. And they have a a seven-year-old son named uh, Nainoa. And he falls overboard when they are on a cruise ship, like out, you know, on vacation. He falls overboard and a shiver of sharks shows up. And look, for sub note, that's the coolest Mm -hmm. collective noun for an animal. Shiver of sharks. Murder of crows is a little better, but shiver of sharks is like very good. So a shiver of sharks shows up. And of course, everyone's like, well, this child is about to die in front of it. This was the most stressful scene that I've ever read in a book. And it's like the opening scene. But instead of attacking the boy, one of the sharks like very gently lifts him with its mouth and returns him to the boat. And so everyone on board is like, well, obviously, this child is like a mythical legendary person who has been selected by the gods of the islands to do something important for his people, because what the heck just happened, you know? And so he turns out to potentially actually have some supernatural abilities around healing. Um, His family lives mostly in poverty, especially since some of the sugarcane like factories that they worked at have closed. And so... He starts this kind of underground business as a child healing his neighbors, but not everybody believes that he is, you know, actually capable of this thing. Maybe it's in everyone's head, all of that. And so then you fast forward to the present day where he is an adult and has moved out off the islands, moved to the mainland in Portland where he's working as an EMT, trying to figure out if everything he was told about himself when he was a kid is true. Like now I am literally in a car every day with injured and sick people. Do I have the ability to heal them? Or was my mother just like, or was my whole family and all of my neighbors just like blowing smoke up my butt? You know, like what, who am I essentially? And he also has two siblings who are, you know, grew up alongside him in the shadow of this like brother who they were taught their whole lives was this mythological creature, like descended from Hawaiian gods here to save us all. And so his brother has also moved to the mainland and is pursuing a 
like fame and money as a basketball star. His sister is in college and is like working herself to the bone academically to kind of get away from her family. And it's just like, you know, on the surface, you get this kind of maybe magical realism story, but there's a lot of doubt interwoven into it. But in reality, and like the effects of oh God, colonization and poverty on people who live in Hawaii. But it's also just a story about a very sad and struggling family. It's not uplifting, <laughs> I wouldn't say. But, you know, I don't know. I don't want to be a downer and be like, people who go to Hawaii have a responsibility to understand what's happening with people who live there. But people who go to Hawaii have a responsibility to understand what's happening with people who live there. Mm-hmm. So even though it's not necessarily like, isn't this a wonderful, beautiful place? Everyone from everywhere should come visit. It is still, I think, important, especially if you're going to go travel to Hawaii as a tourist, which I'm not saying don't do. I'm just saying understand what's happening there, right? Okay, so that's Sharks in the Time of Saviors by Kawhi Strong Washburn. All right. Second question is from Sarah, who says, I recently read the book Red Sister by Mark Lawrence, and I loved it. I normally don't get into epic fantasy, but it occurs to me that the reason for that is because so many novels in that genre are full of dudes. All dudes all the time, with maybe a token female character here and there. So my question is, can you recommend any epic fantasy novels like Red Sister where the characters are primarily women? I'd prefer adult fiction, although YA is fine as long as it doesn't center on an eye-rollingly cheesy slash overdramatic teen romance. Strong feelings there, Sarah. Uh, welcome to, like, the golden age of epic fantasy. Right. There's, so I was like, where do I start? There's so many that don't have dudes at the center of them these days. You are in luck. So I'm going to take this opportunity to talk about a completed trilogy that I love. It's kind of heavy, though. You didn't mention how much grimdark you could stand. <laughs> so w- upfront warning that my recommendation is grimdark. So good, though. The Poppy War series by R.F. Kuang. And this is a sort of pre-industrial fantasy world uh, inspired by China and also the Sino-Japanese War, which was obviously post-industrial, but is sort of projected back in time in this situation. And the main character, Rin, is a war orphan. She is from a very provincial area. She is darker skinned and she is extremely disadvantaged. Her, like the people who took her in, I hesitate to call them parents. The people who took her in are very mean and, you know, abusive towards her. And they're basically going to marry her off to some dude for money. And she's like, no, let's not do that. Let me ace this test that anybody in the empire can take. And if you do a good job on it, you can go to the academy and learn to be part of like the military structure. Maybe you'll be a scholar or whatever. So she takes this test and like studies really, really hard on her own, gets in. Everybody thinks she cheated, but they can't prove it. So she gets to go and she ends up at Synagard, which is this very elite military school. And so she has bettered herself, but also this school is full of like rich kids, basically, who are often lighter skinned than her, have all kinds of different privileges. And so she struggles to fit in there. On top of which, she discovers she has powers that she has to figure out how to control, doesn't know where they come from, doesn't know anything about her family. And in the meantime, the empire is going to war again. So the grimdark piece of this is war, like war crimes, all kinds of terrible things happen. And what I love about this series is that Rin is 
She goes from like scrappy underdog to a sort of anti-heroine that you're like, can I still root for you? And that journey is so well handled. And the overall arc of this series is amazing. It's so good, (laughs) y'all. And there are extremely powerful women throughout the series uh, who shape everything around them in really important ways, as well as, you know, there are also male characters, um, but the women are really at the crux of this plot. And I just, I think it's so good. So again, that's the Poppy War series by R.F. Kuang. Okay, I picked The Wolf of Orinyaro by K.S. Veloso, which is the first book in the Chronicles of the Bitch Queen series, which I can't ever know if I'm allowed to say that on the show because I don't know if Apple's going to punish us, but I went ahead and said it because I'm a loner, Dotty, a rebel. <laughs> okay, so this is a trilogy and the third book is coming out this year, so you should have plenty. By the time you get through one and two, if you want to continue with it, the third one should be out. So this is about a queen named Queen Talion. She is obviously the queen of Oranyaro. That's her like homeland. Her homeland was at war for many, many years, like a very long and bloody war called the War of the Wolves that almost destroyed her country entirely. And now that it's over, she is supposed to marry the son of her father's enemies. Or like her father was the king. He was at war with this other king. She's marrying the other king's son. The night before they're supposed to get married, he runs off. (laughs) So she is just like left or no, they're married and they have a son, but the night before they take the throne together, he runs off. So she is just like left to rule these kingdoms without her husband, with a young son. And, uh, you know, her heart is broken. And she also, you know, there's political implications because the only reason they got married in the first place was to unite these countries or unite these factions. And without him, she re- she's like not able to do it on her own, or at least that's what she's told. She's supposed to do it on her own. And so then she gets a message from a nation across the sea that is supposed to be like, it's from her, hu- her husband who has fled, you know, all those years ago. And it's about reconciliation. Like he wants her to come and meet with him. He is now allied with her enemies and he wants her to come and basically like submit to these people for the good of of their nations or whatever and she's you know of course immediately like hey die in a fire uh (laughs) also i love you but like die but like i love you it's complicated uh and then while she's there there's an assassination attempt someone tries to kill her and she gets lost out in like this this winding city of this other country and then the whole rest of the book is about her trying to figure out how to get home without dying or tell because you can't tell anyone who she is because she's in like enemy territory um, and trying to figure out if this the whole thing was on purpose, like the people who tried to kill her failed, but now she's out in this world where she's probably going to die anyway. And so maybe that was the actual plan. It's just like conspiracies all the way down, turtles all the way down. Um, and then the last little chunk of the book, you figure out that she's been stringing you along this whole time. Like she's a very unreliable narrator, but I didn't realize how unreliable she was until I got to the last chunk and was like, oh, she, okay, I see. And I can't tell you what I'm, I'm making hand gestures, but it's like a spoiler. So I'm not going to. But she's a genius, but also very led by her feelings. She's an Enneagram 8, is what I'm saying. Like she feels a gut feeling and is like, I'm mad at you. I'm going to cut your head off. Sorry, not sorry. Uh, and then the next chapter, she's like, I maybe shouldn't have done that. That was, that was impulsive and bad. Uh, but then it all kind of gets wrapped up in this bow of her genius. It's so good. It's great. Okay, so that's The Wolf of Orinaro by K.S. Veloso. All right, question three is from Jessica, who says, I just finished The Witch's Heart and I really liked it. I would love a read-alike. I've already read both Madeline Miller books and love them as well. Anything you can recommend would be great. Okay, Jen, what you got? So this is a like mythology, folklore, retellings, read-alike mm-hmm. question in case y'all are not familiar with the book that Jessica is referencing. 
which means it's a great opportunity for me to recommend this book that I love called Burning Roses by S.L. Huang, which is a sort of multi-culture retelling. It takes Red Riding Hood from like a Latinx perspective and then Huo Yi, the archer who is from Chinese mythology, and these two characters, Rosa and Hoi, meet each other in this, you know, world that contains all kinds of mythological, folklorical beasties. There's dragons, there's talking animals, there's just like other, you know, characters from mythologies running all over the place. And that's really cool. But what's really amazing about this novella is that it is deeply about two middle-aged women coming to terms with the ways that they have messed up in their lives. And I just thought it was so well done. The feelings are so real because both of them are trying to make certain mistakes that they made in their pasts right, uh, having to do with family and like abandoning family or not appreciating them for what they were. And they don't know if they're going to be forgiven. And they're trying to right these wrongs that now have like come back to haunt them in various ways. And their relationship with each other is very much based on like, I'm going to call you on this BS that you just said to me. But also, <laughs> please don't call me on my BS. Like, I'm too, t- I'm too tender. Like, please don't poke I'm me there. <laughs> and it's really well done. And it's so relatable. And I just love the way that Huang has sort of taken these to like very you know familiar depending on your exposure to mythology characters and like really recreated them and thought like what if and in such an interesting way which is my favorite thing about all these myths and retellings that we're getting like they're so interesting in the new directions that they take these stories that are potentially very familiar to us or they introduce us to new ones that we weren't familiar with so huge thumbs ups again that's burning roses by sl huang So I was looking around at synopses of The Witch's Heart because I hadn't heard of it before. And it is, as Jen said, a mythology or a mythological retelling. It's based around Odin and Loki myths. So I kind of got stuck on on the Loki part because I love Loki uh, and picked a book that is YA. And it's not a romance in the way The Witch's Heart is. The main character in this does not fall for Loki. But Loki is there, and there is a different romance. So The Seafarer's Kiss by Julia Ember is a book that I picked. And it is about a 19-year-old mermaid. Her name is Ursul. And she lives on a glacier with her community. Not on it, because that would be on top of it. In it? <laughs> like, in the bottom, the bottom, the underwater part. She lives in the ocean, y'all. <laughs> She's a mermaid. <laughs> And this life for this uh, clan of mermaids is very brutal. The king is really violent. The females, um, once they they undergo a um, like ritual to determine how fertile they are, and then they have to like immediately get married off and have a bunch of tiny mermaid babies, and like that's all that they do for the rest of their lives. And Ursula is kind of beyond like she's older than she should be for having gone through that ritual. But she doesn't want to. Like, she doesn't want to get married. She doesn't want to have a bunch of babies. She's always been a bit of an outcast, so she kind of assumes that she's not fertile at all. She doesn't want to go through the embarrassment. It's a big social status thing. Like, if you are infertile as a mermaid, you are kind of, like, worthless, all of this. And also, it's, you know, freezing cold because she lives in a glacier. So everything just, like, they eat a bunch of raw octopus. It's just very tactile and cold and harsh and yucky. 
And then one day she hears a uh, a boat sink and sees uh, a woman who whose name is Ragna. She discovers is a survivor who's a shield maiden who gets like stranded on parts of the glacier. Um, nobody else knows that she's there, and Ursula is obviously not supposed to talk to this person or like let this person know that she exists but she does because she doesn't she like feels bad for her doesn't want her to starve also like ursula's an outcast in her own right and is like well maybe this human will talk to me i don't know but it turns out they like catch some feelings because over time ursula brings ragna food she brings her stuff to help her repair a boat so that she can leave but her ursula's childhood friend who's a, a boy who wants her to marry, wants like wants them to get married, but Ursula's like, of course, very resistant, catches them together and everything from there falls apart. So Ursula, to get out of this predicament, makes a pact with Loki, which, you know, if you're familiar with any kind of Loki, including the Marvel movies, but like anything having to do with Loki, you know, he's he's a tricksy hobbit. Um, not literally, but <laughs> so the the deal does not go as planned. Her whole world gets upended. She gets involved in this like political coup. It's just very complicated. And also she's like in love with a lady Viking and Loki is there being very obnoxious, but in a like, oh, somebody smack him. Every time I see that character like in movies and books, I end up feeling like I just want someone to hit him in the face. Just like just one good whack but she gets him good she does get him it's very satisfying so that's the seafarer's kiss by julie ember she doesn't hit him i should clarify he outsmarts him it's different <laughs> awesome all right let's see our next question is from Chantel, who says i'm looking for shifter romance recommendations specifically a romance where the hero pursues the heroine with humor and gusto while she is not that interested usually this kind of plot doesn't last very long so a longer chase if you will I enjoy a male MC that's funny and confident, but also sweet to our female MC. I don't mind if he's alpha-y. Bonus points if it's extra smutty. Note for helping pick, I've read and enjoyed authors Nalini Singh, Patricia Briggs, Shelley Lawrenston, and Suzanne Wright. Okay, I have hit two out of three for you. <laughs> I have a shifter romance for you with a very interested hero pursuing a heroine, and it's very funny and it's very smutty. So I guess maybe it's three out of four, but it doesn't last that long. It's a novella, but it's so good, y'all. I think you're going to like it anyway. So that is Mating the Huntress by Talia Hibbert, whose name you have heard on this show before. Hibbert writes, great stuff. And I somehow did not realize that she had written a shifter Halloween romance. What? Like, come on now. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know. But now I know. Thank you for asking this question, because now I know. And the couple is really fantastic. Our heroine is Chastity Adolfo, who works in her family's coffee shop and, like, is a baker and seems very sort of low-key. But the thing that it turns out is true is that her entire family are werewolf hunters. The problem is, is that they lost some of their, like, family lineage knowledge. So they know some things about werewolf, but they kind of don't know others. And this plays an important role in the storyline, which is why I'm telling you this. And then our werewolf, because of course, is Luke, who is, like, a very affable, sort of doofy in a way, werewolf guy who like doesn't understand why these hunters are so bent out of shape about him he's like i just eat some rabbits and like a long time ago i ate some criminals but like that was a really long time ago like why are y'all getting up in my business in my woods also i think that this one is my mate 
But he doesn't know that she's part of the Hunter family. He knows there's a Hunter family. He doesn't necessarily know that she's part of it. And he, like, keeps coming into the coffee shop to hit on her. And she's like, this guy's a werewolf. I can spot them from a lot of paces. And because of, a like, a prophecy that happened when she's born, she has not been allowed to hunt. So she's like, this is my chance. I'm going to kill this werewolf. And then they will have to accept me as a huntress. And everything will be great. Obviously, that's not what happens. It is a delight. It is a delight. I read this in one sitting. I just, like, tore through it. And it is really fun and enjoyable. And I think you will dig it. So, again, that is Mating the Huntress by Talia Hibbert. I Okay, I had to go to the contributors for this one because I, I don't read enough shifter stuff, I've realized. I also didn't realize... How many different animal options? So many. There, there are. Just the like the, most. Ba- the badger one. Mm-hmm. I, I love the badger one. Personally. The bad, there's a badger shifter. Okay, so I went with Bears Behaving Badly, which is the best title of a book that I've ever encountered in my life. <laughs> uh, it's by Mary Janice Davidson, and the series is called Beware My Heart. I can't. I can't. Okay, so this is about were bears, because apparently bears are an option. Annette is the main character. She is a werebear shifter. She is a caseworker, like a like a social worker for the Interspecies Placement Agency. And she spends most of her days caring for like shifter kids who need governmental assistance, essentially. Like foster kids. But also they turn into wolves sometimes. Like, who? And as a foster parent, yeah. that is pretty that seems accurate so um her the hero is a bear shifter named david who is a private investigator who works sometimes with her agency like you know finding lost kids or figuring out what happened to kids who have been abused and this kind of stuff and so she gets a new charge placed in her custody who's a teen werewolf who is selectively mute and will like will not tell her will not tell annette what has happened to her or anything about her. So she, Annette is like trying to figure out stuff about this girl's past so she can, you know, figure out her secrets basically so she can figure out how to help her. And David is there along the way to help them do that. Except David is like very suspicious of this team. He looks at this werewolf and doesn't think like vulnerable child. He thinks predator, which is ironic because you are literally a bear. Like you are a bear person. So I don't know where you get off anyway. Like whatever. And so uh, Annette and David and like a bunch of different of her, a bunch of different kids in her agency kind of get together to like solve this mystery around this werewolf. Um, and there are like murder attempts and they there's a trafficking cartel that they uncover. And it's just like lots of adventure. And because the two of them have worked together in the past, when you come into the book, they already know each other. And like there's already tension there um, and like reasons why they can't or don't want to get together or whatever. But there's a lot of like history which i thought was really interesting you don't really get tons of romances where there's like an established unless they're like married or divorced or something where there's like this established long established professional history between usually it's like a meet cute right this is not this is not that uh, so i quite appreciated it so that's bears behaving badly by mary janice davidson side note the trope that you're talking about is second chance romance just second chance romance. there we go there it is it's a whole thing it is a whole thing all right let's <laughs> let's hear from our next sponsor Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. 
No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Okay, our next question is from Kelly, who says, um, I've been bouncing between genres as 2021 opens up, and I stumbled across a pretty specific one. It started as I was reading a mystery novel set in England in 1919 called This Side of Murder, which opens with a woman heading to a house party where shenanigans ensue, etc. There are countless books like this, but what I found interesting was the way the characters talked about World War I. Um, seeing a group of characters ambivalently linked by an event of mass trauma, death, and political upheaval, negotiating the echoing space left behind struck a particular chord. I want to ask for a novel that explores this emotional space. Bonus points for getting on with things, new normal vibe, doesn't have to be cozy. This is a sideways way of asking for a Downton Abbey reader like I guess, but late season Downton where there are widows who knew their husbands for like a week and debutantes with no one to dance with. I am aware of Brideshead Revisited, The Foresight Saga, Howard's End, After the Armistice Ball, let's see, a bunch more World War I, a couple World War II things in here, Remains of the Day, The Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. Okay, Jen, go ahead. All right, I picked for you the children's book by A.S. Byatt, and it is possible that this is more than you are asking for. It is <laughs> 675 pages long. <laughs> it's long. It is also, it starts in the Victorian era and then goes through World War I. So it is not confined to the time period you're looking for. But I like I sat there thinking about this question for a while, trying to come up with a way to approach how I w- what I was going to recommend and how I was going to recommend it. And the the piece that I kept thinking about is that like getting on with life in the context of all of these giant 
worldwide upheavals. And that is so much of what this book is about. So it follows a family, the Wellwood family, who live in this like giant house, giant country house. And the sort of matriarch, Olive, is a writer who, you know, writes these ex- incredibly successful sort of magic-y stories. And she and her family are, like, very well off. She has seven kids. She ends up adopting this runaway named Philip, uh, who, you know, just is, like, drawn into this whirlwind kind of big, complicated family. And you follow all of these different family members as, you know, they grow up and have, like, complicated lives with each other. And then, you know, yeah, get drawn into World War One and the aftermath of that. And there's, like, you know, labor disputes and, like, polyamory and, you know, complicated feelings about your mom who, like, has used your childhood to, like, write books and, like, all of these different things. There's, like, a lot of really big, intense feelings in here. So it's not exactly light either. But if you're looking for atmospheric immersiveness and, like, being in that world for an extended period of time, this book is going to do that thing. So that's why I'm recommending it. So, again, that's the children's book by A.S. Byatt. So I'm coming at this, like, majorly sideways, but I think it's going to work. I picked The Brilliant Life of Eudora Honeyset by Annie Lyons, which mostly takes place present day. And the main character, Eudora, is 85. She is done. Like, she's donezo, done, Dunny McDundun, get me out of here, done. Like, she's called a Swiss clinic trying to figure out how to d- how to die, essentially. Like, go to one of those clinics that assists you with your own death. Because she's just, like, over it. She All of her family is dead. She doesn't have any friends. She's not, un- she's not like, unhappy or depressed. She just, like, is, oh, you know, she's 85. Like, been there, done that, right? And then she gets a new neighbor who is a t- who's included... <laughs> The neighbor is a 10-year-old, but, like, she has parents. But she gets a new family moves in next door, including a 10-year-old named Rose, who is very much a whirlwind of color and attitude and sass. And Rose kind of ingratiates herself into Eudora's life, brings her out into, you know, the neighborhood. She makes some friends. And she starts to maybe question her decision about, like, being done with living on this planet. But what you're getting in between these episodes of, of Eudora, like going out into the world and realizing life is worth living, is flashbacks to her childhood. And she was a kid, you know, pretty young, like 10 or 12, I think, during World War II. And her father dies in the war. Um, and it leaves, leaves Eudora, Eudora's mother, and Eudora's sister, who was born like the night that her uh, neighborhood is blown up during the Blitz. So in the middle of like her house falling down her around her, Eudora's mother is giving birth, which like talk about traumatizing. So she has this child. Their family life is very, very bad. Her mother is severely mentally ill. Her sister is, I'm fairly certain, a sociopath. And Eudora is a like normal, healthy person trying to navigate and manage these two people while getting on with things. You know, like you were asking for books that explore the emotional space of kind of getting on with it after this massive trauma. And that's like what Eudora embodies. Like she is just trying to get on with it. And there's there's a lot of, in her flashbacks, pictures of what that was like for people who were coming of age at the end of World War II when it wasn't as severe as World War I where like there were no men left, um, but there was a lot of international trauma, right? And specific, a specific look at how that was handled in Eudora's family when her mother, after her mother was widowed, just completely fell to pieces. And Eudora became the adult in the house at the age of like 12. 
And so you go back and forth between present day and the, the past where she's trying to get on with things and like experience this new normal. But I think seeing how all of that trauma from that war led Eudora to be an 85 year old who just wants to die is and not in like an upsetting way, just in a like very matter of fact, like I have done all of these things and now I'm done kind of way. It's almost like her version of being elderly and getting on with it. Like the the seeing the emotional through line, I think is really fascinating. So that's The Brilliant Life of Eudora Honeyset by Annie Lyons. All right. Our next question is from Tori, who says, My mom, aunt, and cousins had been planning a big trip to Greece that they had to cancel due to continuing pandemic concerns. I was hoping for a recommendation for a fun romp of a book set in Greece as inspiration while they tried to put together a new travel plan for further in the future. Fiction or nonfiction are good, and a female empowerment element would be a plus. I'm just going to keep talking. I picked a memoir for you. It's called Eurydice Street, A Place in Athens by Safka Zinoviev. And Zinoviev is someone who went to Greece as a student and never really thought that she would go back necessarily. But she ended up marrying a Greek expatriate. They had two daughters and they moved back to Athens. And this is how like that what that first year of living in Athens was like. And they're coming at it, obviously, from different perspectives, like Safka's husband is like coming home after having been away for a really long time. So what's that like? And then she is like trying to like become a Greek citizen and navigate this like really complicated bureaucratic system. And, you know, how do you catch a taxi? And like, why is nobody ever on time? And like, where do you get your like Christmas food? And all of these, you know, everyday sort of questions about like, how do I live in this place where I maybe don't understand half of what's going on, maybe more than half of what's going on around me. Also, I have kids, like they're in school trying to learn a new language and like, what is this whole thing? And by all accounts, especially from like the Greek perspective, everybody was like, oh, yeah, this is totally legit. Like, yes, the the Greek, you know, citizenship, like bureaucracy is that complicated. And yep, it's hard to figure out like how the baker works. And oh, yeah, like I totally recognize these uh, situations. And it is very, you know, humorous, but also very thoughtful about what that's like. So again, that's Eurydice Street by Sofka Zinoviev. I picked kind of an oldie classic for this one it's my family and other animals by gerald durrell and he it's a trilogy memoir about durrell's durrell's family growing up uh on the island of corfu and so he has it takes us in the 30s and he grew he was born in india and grew up in england and like you know it's all damp and very upper crust and posh and all of this. And his family just gets like tired of it. And so they relocate, they sell their house and they relocate to Corfu. And Gerald Durrell, is he still alive? I'm not sure. Was, is, whatever. Um, probably most well known as a nature writer. And the book is really full of that. There's a lot of, um, since he was a little boy on this island, tales of being a little boy and discovering like all the lizards, you know, and like the, giving them pet names and terrifying his mother with all the animals that he brings into his home um, and his sister and his brother and all, and, you know, uh, what's that? Not terrifying, um, tormenting his family with all of these animals. Um, but it's also just a very like lovely snapshot of the nature and the, like the natural living 
or natural, what am I trying to say? Natural resources, I guess, um, world, whatever, on this island. And since it takes place in the 30s, it was like kind of before it was a tourist destination. So it still seems very untouched and kind of picturesque in the way that he writes about it. But his family is bananas. Like they're very well traveled. They're very educated and like upper crust English folk. And you probably recognize like Lawrence Dorellis, his brother, Margaret Dorellis, his sister. These are all famous intellectuals and writers who like went on to become you know well went on to become famous intellectuals and writers so they grew up to be successful and the way but the way that he writes his family is very like mary from the secret garden <laughs> like everyone's just benignly neglected on this island maybe you're gonna drown maybe not it's gonna be fine hope you know how to swim please don't eat that lizard <laughs> And it, you know, it's not, I wouldn't say it's a book about female empowerment or anything like that, but it is very rompy. Um, it reminded me, Shirley Jackson has a memoir about parenting called Raising Demons. And it felt very much like that. Like, these kids are just given reign of this beautiful, natural wonder. And Godspeed, you know, which in the 30s was kind of how it was done. And I wish maybe it was like done a little bit more about that like that now. But it's it's just great. Like, My Family and Other Animals is such a perfect title because everybody is wild and skinned knees and sun-kissed and that whole thing. So that's, yeah, My Family and Other Animals by Gerald Durrell. Alrighty. Question seven um, is from Shirayu, who says, I'm looking for a book that resembles You Let Me In by Camilla Bruce. I enjoyed the mythological aspects and the blurring between reality and fiction. I don't mind if the story doesn't have a plot, but I would like a book with strong prose and characters. I would also like to avoid YA, and I've read the popular authors who do things like this, i.e. Neil Gaiman, Isabella Allende, Alice Thompson, and Jesse Burton, so I would appreciate if you could give me something that is off the beaten track. Okay, I'm going to keep going. I picked Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia, uh, which takes place in the 50s in Mexico City at the beginning and then moves to the Mexican countryside. Uh, it's about a debutante named Noemi, who is the daughter of a very wealthy like business I don't remember what he does business person whatever and she spends most of her time going to class and then going to parties and then like getting a new boyfriend and then maybe dumping that boyfriend because he's boring she's not vapid but she is a socialite like her values are socialite values but she's also like very smart and um, knows how to get what she wants and that whole thing so her father brings her into his office and wants to send her on a trip to the Mexican countryside to check on her cousin, who's been recently married, and has started sending letters back home to the family that make it seem like she's sick, or maybe having a breakdown, or like something weird is going on here. And her dad wants Noemi to go out to the house, check on her cousin, and make sure she's not doing anything to like bring shame upon the family name, you know, kind of thing. Um, the cousin has married an Englishman who seemed handsome and like normal. So Noemi is like, oh, no, I don't, you know, she doesn't, she's not interested in this assignment. But then her father bargains with her by like, you can go to grad school if you do this. Okay, fine. So she goes off to this rundown, giant Edgar Allan Poe-ish house, haunting a, Shirley, I don't know how many times I'm talking about Shirley Jackson today, but like this Shirley Jackson monstrosity of a house to check on her cousin. She's got to stay there for a while because it's in the middle of nowhere and she's traveled all the way out there. And her cousin is obviously not well, but she can't put her finger on what the deal is. The house is falling apart, uh, even though this family was supposed to be really wealthy. And the family's super weird. Like, the husband seems normal-ish, but he also, the longer she stays around him, the more kind of ominous and threatening he gets. The husband's dad, who lives there, is a horrible racist old man. I will give their trigger warnings for racism here. Also harmed children, like a lot of it, um, and sexual assault. And so she is finding herself stuck in this house. All of her means of getting her and her cousin out to like maybe go see a real doctor um, start to get shut down. And she starts to hallucinate and it becomes more and more like the the 
the lines between what what's really happening and maybe what she's dreaming become harder to distinguish. Uh, and then everything else that I could say about the plot would be a spoiler. <laughs> uh, but it's very like creepy. I'm very sensitive to frightening like horror, and it, it isn't that. I, at no point was I reading this, and it was like too much. But it felt kind of Neil Gaiman-ish in that way of like nothing. Neil Gaiman writes creepy stuff, like stuff about mythological creatures that are outside of your control. Most of them are pretty dark, you know, even his children's books like Coraline is a creepy book, right? And this felt like that to me. It felt very Coraline-ish on the level of spook or spookiness. So yeah, so that's Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. All right. I picked a book I am reading right now and really loving. It's Love in Color by Bolu Babalola. And this is a short story collection. The subtitle is Mythical Tales from Around the World Retold. And as you might guess from the title, the through line uh, is love stories, but not necessarily like happily ever after. And it is so enjoyable. It is really international. Like there's, you know, folktales from West Africa. There's Greek mythology. There's, you know, A Thousand and One Nights. Like there's just so much going on here. And what she has done is take these stories and reset them, sort of like you let me in, in present day context, but with these touches. So, for example, the very first story is about a woman who is basically like a river goddess. And she is in this relationship with this kind of like jerky thunder god. And she's at like, but they're also in college. Like they're in college. And she's on the swim team because, of course, the river goddess is on the swim team. And they're at like this, you know, party when she sees this other guy and like, oh, maybe this is more interesting. And like, that's the kind of like it blends these mythical elements with these extremely real world elements that I really love. Um, The one that is inspired by Scheherazade, for example, from A Thousand and One Nights, is like about like a political consultant and like a lobbyist kind of. And they're like very complicated, like sort of adversarial relationship. It's so interesting what Babalola is doing here. And I just, I love it. I think you will love it. Everybody who is looking for more of these mythological retellings absolutely needs to read it again that's love in color by bolu babalola and that's our show yay yay (laughs) insert clapping emoji (laughs) thank you so much to our audio editor jen zink thank you all for listening you can get more reading recommendations at bookriot.com and find our other podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen please leave us a rating and a review on apple podcasts and thank you to our sponsors you can find us on social media i'm on instagram at i'm amanda nelson where's jen I am on Instagram and Tumblr as Jen IRL. That's Jen with two N's, IRL. And you can find me on Instagram as I am Jen IRL. And we will talk to y'all next week. Bye.